I'm an 85 percenter. If I can bring on people within my organization that do the job at 85% of how I would do it, I'm a home run hitter. No question about it. People run into a rut in terms of their entrepreneurialism when they expect everybody around them to perform at their level. If that was the case, you would be working for them. They wouldn't be working for you. So you really have to adjust your perspective and your standard to what your expectations are. Kurt Malkoff was born in Youngstown, Ohio. Kurt has a BA, MA, and PhD degree from Ohio State University. He is a clinical psychologist and founder of Matrix Psychological Services. They have four offices in Columbus with 35 psychologists, psychiatrists, nurse, licensed mental health counselors, and substance abuse specialists. Kurt is happily married for the second time, has one daughter and one granddaughter. He is a skier, biker, racquetball player, and frustrated architect, all of which we will talk about on the show. Kurt is a good friend, and it's a real honor to have him on. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. We are back with my friend and mentor and trusted advisor, Kurt Malkoff. And Kurt, I'm I'm really uh, excited to do this with you. You and I have had a lot of really great conversations just one-on-one. I find you to be somebody that I admire. I really learn a lot from you, not just in like a uh, psychological, technical way, which I do learn from you, you know, there, but just in how you live, I think is really, you know, what I tend to turn to you most for is just, you know, kind of life experience and how you've chosen to live your life is, is, is admirable for me. So I really appreciate who you are in the world and your friendship. And I'm really excited to actually record one of those conversations that's about you and share it with our audience. Terrific. And thank you for the kind words too. Well, uh, I mean it. Let's uh, start at the beginning. I want to kind of hear from you uh, what life was like. I've I've heard you you talk about this a little bit, but I really want to know kind of what you recall from your very early days of being a child and and you know what i want to know is like who were you and what was the family dynamic that you were being raised in the the environment the you know geography the you know complexity of your family you know kind of all of that early stuff i jokingly say brett that uh, a lot of what i am today i think can be attributed to uh, my mom and dad, and, you know, frequently people say, how did you build a business? You really didn't take business courses. You know, you're really not a business person. And I said, I, I grew up with two parents. My mother graduated high school at 16. My father dropped out of high school at 16. They're both brilliant restaurateurs. They ran anywhere between two and four restaurants for 40 years in the Youngstown, Ohio area. And so much of my upbringing, I think, was predicated on being in and around the restaurant business. And I look back and I think that probably everything I functionally learned about general behavior 
came from those experiences from the time I was probably 14. You know, I'd bust tables. And then as I got older, I'd, I'd be sort of a hostess and then a night manager and whatever. And in Youngstown, which was a very, very diverse community from the 40s up until probably the late 70s, when the steel mills went out, Black people, white people, Asian people, gay people, straight people, all those experiences, I think, laddered into my interest eventually to become a psychologist. But I think if we put all of that aside, I was just damn lucky to have two good parents. Faye and Mary Malkoff, in my mind, were special people. They got married around the Depression. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have any money. They hit what was known as the bug, which was the lottery. You, you know, you, you give somebody, you know, $3 and they would, you know, bet it for you. And they hit for $500. And what did they do? They got in their car and they drove out west because they had nothing else to do. There was a depression. They were working, but they really weren't working. And they saw this uh, car hop thing where you would pull up to a building and somebody would come out on roller skates or whatever, take your order, go back in. Sonic is trying to re-replicate that. It was a real 40s, 50s you know, operation, 30s, 40s, 50s. Anyway, they came back to, back to town and they took whatever money they had left and they bought this beat up little building, it was a bicycle shop, and they started a restaurant. My mother was uh, an exceptional cook. Throughout the year, she really never did much cooking in the restaurant. She would teach people how to do that. But, you know, to answer your primary question, I was just lucky to have really great parents. And they had me later in life, too. Mm. My uh, mother was 36 years old. My father was 39. I tell people they gave me everything except limits. <laughs> well, let me let me hop in there because you know this is a little unique because you know I, uh, as you know, have a a passion for you know the mind and psychology and growth and kind of understanding our 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 traumas, our family histories. You know, kind of our, our how everything is kind of played a role in who we are. I mean, this is just something I've kind of uh, always been fascinated with. And that's probably, uh, there's probably a, a fair explanation for that too. But one of the things that I have found in doing this podcast, there's usually this theme when I start with this you know, question where people will either say something like you just did, which is like, unconditional love, like I had the best parents, I had the best childhood, I had the best upbringing, or it's usually there was some trauma, you know, things were chaotic, there was, you know, divorce or, you know, abuse or any number of things. And in both cases, you know, I'm kind of spoiling the sample because I am really interviewing people that have landed with some level of success in any number of of fields, but you know they've kind of arrived doing something that you know they're passionate about and and you know successful in, and so it seems like you know either way works, but that you know it's kind of you know one or the other, and you can kind of get to the end either way. Um, but I'm kind of curious, you know, that I now that I have you yeah. and maybe getting a little off format, like tell me about like what you think of that, you know either way works. And also, you know, just how much it was really beneficial to have it the way you had it, you know, with these great parents. 
first of all, it's the, the classic psychological question. Uh, how mm-hmm. much does upbringing influence one's future life success? And the answer is, is a lot, you know, whether they're really shitty or whether they're really good. In, in, in my particular case, I had Faye and Harry Malkoff blocking and tackling for me for the first probably 30 years of my life. And what I mean by that, Brett, is I never had to worry about finances. I was an only child. They had me later in life, as I said. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, you know, had some privilege. But I always appreciated that and never took that for granted. Not because of me, but because of them. They constantly mentored me. And you are very fortunate, Kurt. It's important that you get involved, you give back, you get involved, you know, what have you. And even though uh, they both worked in the restaurant business, they were incredibly charitable. And I can remember countless situations where they would discuss with me why we're doing this in terms of a giving nature, why we're involved with this, what have you. So from my perspective, you know, in in no way am I going to sit here and say, you know, I have the perfect life. Uh, My mother ended up having Alzheimer's for 11 years. My father had a massive coronary when I was six years old and fortunately lived for another 25 years, but he was a cardiac cripple. Uh, as you know, I went through a divorce, remarried, but that worked out great too. I have a very good relationship with my ex-wife. My present wife has a good relationship with my ex-wife and maybe that's because they have a common enemy. I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, And I have a wonderful daughter and, and grandchild and son-in-law. So somebody listening to this might say, well, that MF is just really lucky. And I'll be the first one to say, yeah, I, you know, I went, came down the right chute. There's no question about it. But I will say, and as we get deeper in the interview, I think I took advantages of certain opportunities I had that maybe some other people wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. On, the yeah. flip side, on the flip side of your question, I think people who have disruptive upbringing can either be motivated by that or imprisoned by that. I see people from my clinical practice that literally spend years trying to swim through that disharmony that they they grew up with. And that's heavy baggage. It really is. Now, now when you when you win, it's a great story. Yeah. Okay. Great story. But it's more difficult. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I get that. And I I believe that's probably true, you know, and not that you know, any of it uh, might not have its difficulty. I mean, you know, as you outlined, I mean, sometimes maybe even uh, I wonder about whether or not, you know, people that have it so good, you know, I think about this for my own family, like, is it then more difficult when difficulty strikes because they're not used to difficulty, right? And like, that is, you know, one thing that is certain, everybody's going to have their uh, moments, you know, maybe maybe days, weeks, months, years, where uh, things are hard, and you know that's that doesn't really nobody's I think immune from that. The top two buzzwords now in psychology are grit and resilient. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're raising your own kid, 
you know, they're kids of privilege, you know, they're mm -hmm. fortunate, but you always want to be intentional about giving them skill sets that don't just rely on the privilege. Yeah. Yep. Uh, agree. So, um, yeah, grit and resilience. I mean, those are two things that I think I um, got, you know, fairly young and have served me really well. You know, then you have to kind of, you know, develop the things that maybe you didn't get. But tell me a little bit more before we kind of get too far into, you know, kind of how you took advantage. I, I do want to come back to that because I, I think there's probably a lot to hear there. But I'm kind of curious about like who you were in your kind of early recollection of like kind of how you were thinking or being like in hindsight, like what kind of a, a, a kid were you? What kind of a well, you know, as, young man were you? As a, well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask my elementary school principal, she would say, uh, he turned into a psychologist. Are you serious? He needed a psychologist. Uh, <laughs> If, if yeah. you ask my friends, they would actually probably say the same thing, but in a more socialized fashion. Uh, one of the things that my parents didn't give me, as I jokingly said, were limits. So I didn't have a rigor of uh, academics was always important. So I don't want to give the impression that it wasn't. But I didn't have the set study time. I didn't have parents who laid down schedules and routine. And I think a lot had to do with their age. They were happy, you know, that, that I was, you know, born, at least for most of, most of the time they were. And, uh, you know, they both worked. So it was like, you know, little Curdy, he'll study, he'll read, he'll do his stuff. Ironically, and I, as you know, because we talk about it, uh, I am very curious. I'm a monster reader. I read three or four books at the same time. That didn't happen until I was about 22 years old. Uh, in undergraduate school, uh, if I liked the course, I got an A. If I didn't like it, I didn't go to class and I got a C. When I tell people that, they say, how did that lead you to getting a PhD in psychology? Well, it was 1969, 68, and uh, there was a Vietnam War. And I wasn't uh, particularly adept at shooting and fighting, at least in my own mind. So like many of my uh, cohorts, we looked for alternatives to that war. And uh, one of the alternatives was to teach special education. I had never taken a special education course. I was a psych major. So where do you get a job? Southern Ohio, Burn Union, Sugar Grove, Ohio, 20 miles south of Lancaster. I took two courses in special education. I got a temporary certificate. Teaching job for $5,200 a year in 1969. Didn't have a clue how to teach. But I really loved the kids I was teaching because nobody paid attention to them. And back then, special, special education was keep the kids out of the hallway. And I said, that's bullshit. I'm going to teach these kids. And I basically created just because I was curious, non-educational techniques of instruction. I bring in the newspaper and I take out, cut out ads out of the dispatch. And I'd set up a little grocery store and I'd teach these kids how to exchange money and know when they were short chain or, you know, I, I, I had them draw the, 
the large overhead projector, the map of the United States on one of the walls. The school was just decrepit. So I wasn't, you know, uh, displacing any property. And nobody ever taught these kids. Long story short, I became so involved with that that I said, I want to go back to graduate school and be- become a psychologist. Took the GREs, uh, applied to Ohio State, and they said, you know, your GREs are okay, but we really don't accept people with a 2-3 undergraduate acute. <laughs> uh, I don't tell many people that, that, by the way, now the world knows. Hmm. And they rejected me. So I made a point. Or I made an appointment with a guy named uh, Dr. Oates, Dean. He was Dean of Academic. And I went in and I said, Dean Oates, I understand my undergraduate grades weren't stellar, but I thought I did well on the uh, GREs. And I think that uh, my experience last year teaching was an epiphany. And I really want to become a psychologist. And he's looking at his watch and he says, uh, we turned down students with three, two acume. Why would I accept you? And I mean, he was frank with me. Yeah. And then I gave him more, you know, more cell, more cell. And he's looking at his watch and it's about 10 to 12. And he says, I got a 12 o'clock meeting. I'll tell you what I'll do because you clearly are passionate. You retake the English portion of the GRE. And my, the grade was pretty good, but not to the, not to the standards he wanted. He said, you raise it by 75 points. You take 18 hours of a quarter system of education psych courses, education courses, basically, and get at least a 3-5 and come to see me in the fall. If you do that, I'm going to let you into graduate school. And he basically said, why don't you run a 10-flat 100? Because okay? mm-hmm. there was no way that was going to happen until it happened. Mm-hmm. I took, the, I took the GREs, raised it 105 points, three A's, three B's, went into his office, laid it out in front of him, and he said, you're in graduate school. Let me, okay, so let me ask you about this, because I think this is sort of fascinating, kind of going back to your, first of all, you know, I'm curious, why did you choose to be a psych major in the first place? And then what was it, and, and was it the same thing ultimately that has you wanting to teach these kids in a way that is actually going to uh, have them learning and learning about things that you deem to be important, which are like life skills, right? As opposed to whatever right. the mm-hmm. curriculum says. And then, you know, what I think most people at that age do when they're told no and like a, like a resounding no, like you're not close, right? Or here's some horrible mountain you've got to climb in order to do this. Most people will say, it's not for me. But so there's obviously something in you that has you really, really drawn to this work and willing to kind of do whatever it takes to be able to do this work. Can you just kind of expand on that? Well, growing up, I was enamored by... uh an older cousin who was an orthodontist. And I just, you know, he, he was a pillar of the community. He was the guy to go to, had a great practice, great personality, the whole deal. And I said, I'm going to be an orthodontist. Well, I was an orthodontist until I took chemistry. <laughs> and then I wasn't an orthodontist. 
I quickly learned that I like the sciences, but I like the social sciences. So I took some sociology, took some psychology, and I just thought that how fascinating is it to try to understand human behavior? And as I alluded to before, I would work in the restaurants in the summer when I came home from college and, you know, summers in high school. Managing people is all psychology. And, you know, helping them sort of, you know, when, when you have, you know, two waitresses that can't stand each other, you have to do something to sort out that relationship. I didn't realize what I was doing, but basically I was doing what I do, you know, professionally now for 40 some years. So I guess to your question, I always had a great interest in human behavior. As an only child, I didn't have any siblings. But to this day, I keep in touch with probably 50% of my kindergarten class. They were my brothers and sisters. I probably talked to one of them once every three weeks. They're all over the country. And it's just maybe that's the, the foundation of all, all of this mm-hmm. and yeah. what interested me. I mean, it just sounds like, you know, for whatever reason, and maybe it is, you know, kind of how you were raised or the environment that you were in, the, you know, restaurant business, but it's just who you are. I mean, there was something in you that was really just called to that work. Some people ask me, what would you have been if you weren't a psychologist? And I don't have an alternative answer. I mean, I have picked, I have friends who are mental health people and are very good at what they do. But they just don't imbue it like like I look at this profession. I love this profession. I really do. As an aside, I probably would be a frustrated architect. So I, I love some of the stuff you do and the design and all of that. But yeah. that that'd be more of a vocation versus something yeah. real. Well, well, and I know you do love that, and um, you probably would have had the same experience I had as I started out uh, going into architecture until I got to physics <laughs> and then realized, um, oh, wait, I don't want to be an architect. I, I like architecture. So uh, talk a little bit about then kind of, you know, you, you obviously get into graduate school, you pass the test, you, you know, get into this work. It, what, what happens out of school? How do you start to now get into your, your career? Okay, well, I, I love graduate school. Uh, and I think if I had more time, I would probably go up to Ohio State and say, I'd like to formulate another graduate program, you know, combining, say, philosophy, anthropology, uh, sociology, you know, three or four different things and create a, a program for, for myself. So I'm a lifelong learner. I'd, I'd love to do that. But it's not very practical. So I, uh, I finished my graduate work. I did my clinical internship at University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. And I had relatives in Dallas and uh, loved Dallas. Could have, could have actually stayed in Dallas. But I had to come back and finish a dissertation. So I came back and uh, finished up. And I started in practice with a Bexleyite, actually. Two Bexleyites. Uh, Roslyn Priester, who had a uh, very successful psychiatric practice, a psychiatrist. And I went to school with uh, her son, Steve. And he he was in 
psychiatric residency while I was in graduate school. And I took a lot of psychiatric courses. So we, we would see each other frequently. And I don't know, one thing led to another. And he introduced me to his mother. And, you know, we, we started practicing with her. But I'm an entrepreneur by nature. Uh, and it's hard for me to work for some. I wasn't working for her per se, but I need to run my own show. And whether I do it successfully or unsuccessfully, that's fine. But I, that's just me. Uh, there was a pediatrician, several I pediatricians. I relate to that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's parallel to this, clearly, from you and I yeah. talking. But at any rate, Bob Polster and Alex Dubin had a pediatric practice on the east side of town. And attached to their practice was a pediatric dentist, Larry Eisenman. I don't know if you know Larry or not. All, all three of them are I good doubt. guys. At any rate, they said, Larry's got this storage room that we could turn into an office for you. Because at that time, I was focusing more on children and families. I was fully trained clinically, but I just liked children and family work. So that, you know, we got somebody to clean up the, the office, made a little office out of it. And uh, I started practicing psychology. And, uh, you know, did that for probably a year and a half or so. And I became very busy very quickly. And I took in an associate uh, after about two years. And this was about 78. So I started in 1976. And I was doing a lot of work with clients from Victoria's Secret. There was no Victoria's Secret at the time. It was just limited store. But just around the city from, you know, Cardinal Health, you know, Limited, Children's Hospital, whatever. I'm just seeing them. And around that time, the concept of EAP or Employee Assistance Program started germinating. Ford Motor Company was the first company in the country to have a program that basically focused on drug and alcohol issues where any of their associates could confidentially get counseling for, you know, drug and alcohol issues, then extend it to mental health. So I, I did some research and I said, I, I think we can put together a program like this. You know, and I'm fast forwarding it because, you know, it obviously took X number of years. But probably from 78 to 85, I built up, hired numerous psychologists, opened up several offices. Uh, created programs for L Brands, Children's Hospital, Cardinal Health, Mount Carmel Hospital, Riverside, Abercrombie and Fitch, what have you. And it, it really, you know, developed into a hell of a I mean, it still is. It's just my main business. But at the same time, Central Ohio primary care physicians, which was on Town Street, where we saw a lot, we saw a lot of their patients, approached me and said, Do you know anything about health maintenance organization. And I said, they're big on the West Coast, but you know, I don't know anything about them. And the head physician said, we're putting together a program for Central Ohio with Prudential Insurance. You do most of our mental health, which you consider becoming involved with that. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm curious, as I said, by nature. I, I think I'm a business person by nature. I said, before I say yes, let me do some research. So I basically 
contacted the American Psychological Association that isn't good for much other than sending you reprints. And they sent me two boxes of reprints on how to provide psychological services to health maintenance organizations. I split up the literature with two of my psychologists, and we basically self-educated ourselves to how to do that. And it, it was a small, it initially started probably 85 or 86, and it was small. It, they had about 500 or 5,000 covered lives which means they were responsible for the medical and psychological care of 5,000 people. Psychologists see about 5% of the population of that group. So basically it was 250 new patients a year, which we had you know, half a dozen or so psychologists. So it was no big deal. The problem was the 5,000 turned to 10,000, then 18,000. And in about 30 months, we had 40,000 covered lives we had to be responsible for. And that was not my thing. You know, I, I know how to manage a practice, but not a business. And I was going through a divorce at the same time. I said, I need some help. And I brought in a woman who I've known for years I grew up with in Youngstown, who uh, had a master's degree in administration. I mean, she just basically organized the whole thing for me. She's recently retired after 32 years computerized everything. And I was just doing my thing. I was managing the clinical piece. And then we're doing obviously the EAP stuff alongside with that. Mm -hmm. And that's a short tale of how all of this developed basically. Interesting. So the, um, what, what I kind of am struck by is, you know, kind of going back to your family upbringing, you know, and connecting that dot, you know, you, you clearly, you know, you even said, that you're an entrepreneur, right? But you're really, you know, both a psychologist and an entrepreneur, which which makes total sense that you would then be working with employers, with you know, large, fast-growing businesses, healthcare systems, um, because it's not only your own kind of entrepreneurial effort and business, but you're now engaged in the business world through the psychological lens. And so it it does feel like you are kind of then now bringing all of that experience and all of that, you know, curiosity and passion into something, you know, which, which to me, you know, I have found in my, my own life when you can do that, you know, we've talked a lot about that when you can, combine your passions into your work, you know, it can be like you described, you're just out there doing your thing. And and then you also then uh, know you're smart enough to know what you don't want to do and what you're not good at. Right. So then you bring somebody in, which, you know, is also probably a really important thing that you are doing for other people. Right. Like that's part of this assessment is personality and, you know, what people skill set, what people are good at, what they want to be. Like that's what you are doing in part is figuring out, you know, kind of how to put the pieces of the puzzle together organizationally. And you had to figure that out for your own organization. I think, and you can probably speak to this as well as I can. I think to be a successful entrepreneur or business people, you can't do it alone. And, those who think they can probably shouldn't have gone into it in the first place. 
But I have a, a motto that I'm an 85 percenter. If I can bring on people within my organization that do the job at 85% of how I would do it, I'm a home run hitter. No question about it. I think people run into a rut in terms of their entrepreneurialism when they expect everybody around them to perform at their level. If that was the case, you would be working for them. They wouldn't be working for you. So you really have to adjust your perspective and your standard to what your expectations are. I'm proud to say my parents had waitresses for 25, 30 years, cooks for 20 years. The woman I mentioned to you was here for 32 years, a previous office manager, 29 years, accounts manager, 21 years, because they're just good, solid people. And could I do their job? If I put my mind to it, I probably could, but why would I want to do that? It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just do a great job. And I'm real happy with the standard that I've I've set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, we're kind of uh, touching a little bit on, you know, this this subject that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about. You know, where you know you you said I think it's magic. You know, when you when you can land in that spot where you're doing the thing that you love to do and it's driving a lot of value to the business. You know, I call that unique ability, right? The thing that you you love to do that you're you're excellent at and you know is driving tons of value to the business that you know you can you can do you know maybe forever and and it's it gives you energy I, I, and I hope right? so. Yeah, right. I know you do because we've talked about this. So talk a little bit about though how that continues to evolve for you, right? Because even though you know you kind of find the thing that you love to do and you can do it forever, it's still changing, you know, perpetually, like forever. Like there's tweaks, maybe it's not as drastic, but it's still an evolution. So, you know, I'm kind of curious about how your role with the company continues to evolve as you landed in that. I think you have to go back 35 years. I made a conscious effort or decision, should I say, at 40 years old, that I was going to not reinvent myself, but to iterate myself as it relates to what I do in life, what I focus on, and what I do within you know, my practice, my business matrix. And I would say, I would, in retrospect, every five or so years, I just redo the game plan and say I wanted to do more community work from 40 to 50 years old. So I carved out time. You know, you only have so much time. So obviously, if you extract time that gives more effort to community service or whatever, play, pleasure, then you have to take it from someplace and that's the business end of it. So if you would see videos of what my day consisted of, when I was 40, 45 years old versus what it is today, it's the same eight hours, but the focus of nine hours, pick a number, but the focus is totally, totally different. Back then I was engaged in much more clinical service. I wasn't spending as much time on next. Uh, I, you know, again, I was 40 years old. So the management piece was more on my shoulders 
than it is now. So fast forward 25 years or 35 years, I basically am in a position that I want to love every time I walk into this office. And that doesn't mean that everything I have to do, I love that I do. Because as an owner, there's some crap you have to do that's not fun. But with that said, for the most part, my day is carved out focusing on things I really get great pleasure out of and where I think I add value to. I still see probably a dozen people in, in, in psychotherapy. Uh, most of them have been long-term you know, patients of mine. Some I see once a month, some I see every couple of months, something of that nature. But most of my focus recently has been on a division that we call unfinished business, which uh, involves about 10 of our psychologists, uh, all PhDs, several have MBAs, and is focused on uh, business activity, where there's pre-employment assessment or team building or things. uh, We have a product called a cultural mosaic where we go into a group and we do individual assessments using three psychologists, two to do the assessment, one to look at the psychometrics, never sees the, the individual. And then we create a report that's about 35 pages of strengths, weaknesses, developmental issues, what have you. And then we take, say there's six on, the, on that team, we take all six of those reports and combine them into a mosaic And we create a team format of how that team can most effectively work with each other. And that's fun stuff. It's basically psychology, but it's, it's, it's at a different level. Yeah. You're like, you're like, instead of like pulling apart the mind, you're pulling apart the, the mind of the organization and figuring out how to put it together. So I, I totally see kind of how, this you know all makes sense, and again, kind of coming back to your passion for business, um, yeah, really cool. And you know, I'm kind of uh, I, I, I'm just reminded. Actually, we, we were just together over the weekend, and I was sharing uh, a story with Leslie about how we skied together and uh, in the spring. And you know, one of the things you know, kind of going back to my opening comments that I've admired is that you have figured out kind of how to strike that balance where um, you spend a fair amount of time out West skiing. You've told me in the past that you have sort of dashboard for the business. So you're always in communication, in touch, and you know, keeping a real clear uh, view of what's happening. But you are able to kind of find that balance of, of you know, even just kind of your your you know dozen patients that you still see in that context, the new innovative ways that you're contributing to the business, the things you love to do personally, and the time away from the business that you value. I mean, you've you've kind of, I think, from a from a distance, you know, really sort of nailed kind of how to balance the work life you know in a balance you, you you seem to really have gotten that and and I'd like for maybe you to share a little bit about kind of how you arrived at that because I know that isn't something that you know you just did you you probably had to work towards being in the position you're in 
well, if I told you by nature I'm lazy, uh, so uh, you'd probably say, well, you sure didn't describe, you know, a history of being lazy. I love doing what I do, and I think I do those things very well. But if I can find a way that something else is accomplished with minimal effort on my part, I'm all for it. Because at the end of the day, I'm Kurt centric. Okay. I don't know if that's egotistical. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But I think of myself primarily when it comes to all of these activities and how can, how can I most effectively engage in these activities with me in mind. And you might say, well, that's pretty self centered. Don't you think about your wife and your, your child and your grandchild, whatever? Absolutely. That gives me more opportunity because I'm judiciously using my time that I can focus on my marriage, on my daughter, on my grandchild, you know, whatever we're talking about. So I don't look at that as self-centered. I look at that as temporally efficient. And so with all that said, uh, as I get older, I think one of the things that I'm always focusing on is being at some level of relevancy. And, you know, we've got some older friends in there. 80s, 90s. And I think if you really sat down with them and honestly had a conversation with them, their biggest fear is not being, because we're talking about people basically were successful, not being relevant as they get older. And th that's an area that I focus on personally. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be doing something that I'm just dragging the system along. You know, if I get to a point within my business that somebody else can do it better or faster or, or more efficient, then hopefully my ears are open that I'll say, okay, you're absolutely right. I'm not up for the task anymore, but what can I do to add additional relevancy? Because so far, I think it's been working. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we talk in five or 10 years, I'll say the same thing. Hopefully I will. Well, one of the things, maybe this is a little off subject, but one of the things that I think you've done over the years, just kind of observing is you've also had some hobbies and some things that, you know, kind of outside of your work that have also been passion for you. I know that you um, were, I don't know if you're still um, riding, you were a cyclist, you know, I... You skied, you know, you could ski laps around, you know, me and my kids. You know, I saw that firsthand. You know, I'm, I know you I'm highly, I'm highly competitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe to a fault, mm -hmm. but I'm highly competitive and I still do distance biking. I'll probably do, probably do a hundred. I might do the, the whole thing of Pelotonia, but I'll, mm -hmm. I'll probably at least do a hundred. I like new challenges. So I'm a racket sport player. I'm trying to get my arms around pickleball. I think it's healthy psychologically, physically, mentally to have something new that you aren't particularly competent in to try to get efficient at. Mm -hmm. That's my personal. Yeah, there's something about it, you know, and, and um, I don't know, I, I've just been noticing this more for myself, even as I um, exercise and play a lot of tennis, you know, I used to run. I know you've also taken up running, you know, it, there's something about kind of the, um, feeling that you get from being 
um, really good at something. You know, it, there's some strength in there. There's some energy. It's it's energetic. It's very fueling to feel, you know, like you're capable and competent, conquering and achieving. There's something that just kind of uh, energetically is very fulfilling in that. Um, and it could probably come in any number of ways, but physically in particular, I think has its own sort of really beneficial energy. I, I, I also like the banter of sport. Mm-hmm. I like the smack talk. Uh, <laughs> you do. Yeah, I, 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 four years ago, because Pelotonia has been with COVID been, you know, sort of iterated, but I had a jersey made and on the back of the jersey, it said, you've just been passed by a 71 year old psychologist. How does that make you feel? <laughs> you know? So anybody yeah. who says there's no smack talk and biking is wrong. Yeah, totally. That's really funny. <laughs> Kurt, let me, let me switch gears with you. Pardon the pun. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, a little bit of the conversation we we're having, you know, over the weekend in the last, you know, few years, you know, you mentioned the pandemic. I mean, everything has been pivoting and, there's been a lot of stuff coming up. Um, it feels like a, a very kind of big societal moment shift. You know, people are calling it all kinds of things. But you know, what's happened is you know there's been a lot around racial tension. There's been a lot around gender, and and now you know what we're seeing with you know the matter of choice and in Roe v. Wade and. Um, you know, certainly people have been looking at their family relationships, their marriages, their children, anxiety, fear, politics. I mean, I, I mean, in my lifetime, I don't recall seeing so much kind of bubbling up at one time. And, and that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened before, but, you know, it's certainly taken its toll on a lot of people. Um, even, you know, as you think about organizationally, the workplace, right? Work from home and, you know, what people now, you know, with, with labor shortages, what people are doing to try to retain and attract talent. And there's just a lot of stuff going on right now. And I'm just kind of curious, as you are probably seeing all of that firsthand, if you could maybe just expand a little bit on maybe this Kind of moment in time, this his, this moment in history that does feel sort of, you know, really important and you know, kind of uncertain as to which way it's going. First of all, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. So even though we clearly are going through uh, political times we haven't seen in a long time, we're we're, we're seeing societal sub issues that you know are at the highest it's ever been. Uh, in terms of anxiety and a variety of other things. Uh, and then you throw COVID on top of that. From my understanding of, of this virus, it's probably going to be with us for, for a long time. It's going to be the new flu, so to speak. And we're probably going to have to take yearly shots or, or multiple shots or whatever. But, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that. We've dealt with many things much more difficult medically over the last couple of hundred years. With all that said, I do agree with you that we are seeing a culmination of probably a lot of different frustrations over the last 50 or 60 years, and they seem to be hitting us at at the same time. And then you had people living in their bedrooms for 22 months and, you know, homeschooling and 
you know, threw kids off. And these are clearly different times. Nothing that we can't handle. And as I said, I'm an eternal optimist. But I think we really have to be very intentional and very thoughtful on how we do some of these things. Because the United States is still an experiment. You know, it's only a couple of hundred years old. And people say, well, why can't we have, you know, medical care like they have in Sweden or Japan or what? You know, you're talking a tenth or a sixth of our population. I jokingly say the United States is six different countries. I mean, you have the, the South, you have the Midwest, you, California is its own country. Texas probably is its own country. For sure. And, yeah. <laughs> so w- what I think, and you mentioned Roe versus Wade, I think that basically we're going to throw everything back to the state. And you're going to see some very, very red states get very draconian, which in my mind is sad because the people who get beat up on that are the poor and the uneducated because they don't have the resources to get on a plane and fly to wherever to have a medical procedure. You know, and we're seeing uh, Starbucks recently came out that they said that they would, uh, in, they would, they would financially and medically support any of their staff who, you know, wanted to have an abortion. And you're having other organizations say that, but putting that aside, I think we're going to see this polarization for a while. And uh, the short answer is we have to get better at talking with each other. We're really good at talking to each other. It, it's different times. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And, and, you know, I kind of probably feel very optimistic in general um, as well. And I'm not sure that I have kind of a lot of evidence for that optimism. Um, but I just, that's just how I'm wired. And I, you know, hear you say this and hear you, you know, say the, you know, we're probably in this for a while and polarizing times. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, curious to hear a little bit more of kind of the optimism piece where it's like, you know, do you feel like all of this, all the polarization and all of the tension and pain and suffering is going to eventually get us to a better place. And like, you know, I don't know, like how long does that take? Is it in our lifetime? You know, is this just part of part of what we have to go through as a society, the the swings, the ups and downs to kind of find some sort of centered, grounded, peaceful place? You know, is that where the optimism is? Or, you know, talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of how you still remain optimistic despite, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, suffering that's going on today. One of the reasons I think I have that perspective is I'm a student of history. So when we were talking Saturday, I mentioned John Meacham's book, The Soul of America. And if you read that book, it basically goes over the last 250 or so years and I mean, we have gone through this kind of polarization numerous times before. So if if you really look at history, this isn't new. I'm a 60s kid. So Vietnam, I remember knockdown, drag out conversation at the dinner table with my mother, who, as you know from this interview, I love dearly, but she thought Ronald Reagan was a communist. So you could see how we would have some interesting conversation. But with that said, 
we weathered that. We got to a comfortable narrative. And I'm not using my family as a, as a microcosm because it's a real outlier. But I do think that if you look at political history and sociological history in this country, you see pendulum shifts. And when one side or both sides get incredibly extreme, because we have 333 million people, a significant majority moves you back towards a center right or a center left position. Right now, we're on steroids. We're on yeah. fire. There's no question about it. And we're seeing scary stuff. Mm. You know, we're seeing stuff that we saw in the 30s. We thought we wouldn't see anymore, whether it was a racial thing or a religious thing or whatever. But uh, to answer your question, I'm optimistic by nature and I never want to lose that because it served me well. Yeah. And I would, I would encourage more people to look at the glass half filled and half empty, even yeah. though it's not as filled as it would, we would like it to be. Yeah. I think that's really a great message. And, um, you know, we're starting to wrap up um, as we're running out of time, but I feel like uh, that's sort of really who you are and what you do are doing for so many people. And, you know, um, if you let me just kind of uh, compliment you for a minute, I mean, your optimism does really come through and your kind of zest for life, the, the, the joy and love that you have for your family and your friends and your team and your work and your passion and your community and your, you know, hobbies the way that you kind of, you know, tackle, you know, the, I'm going to do the hundred and, you know, the sign on your back and the, 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 um, smack talk. I mean, you know, you, you, you are kind of the change that I think, you know, we need in the world and that does inspire people. And it's probably not a coincidence that you're in your line of work where you can really do that for people. So um, I just wanted to say that and thank you and acknowledge you and um, and certainly appreciate you know the opportunity to have you on the podcast today and and um, just have you in my life. Also, you know, one thing I was just thinking about, and then I want to give you a chance for some final thoughts. But when you were talking about kind of if you had more time and you know kind of what you'd like to teach, you know, today there's so many ways to teach. Don't have to be in the academic setting, and the way that you describe that class that you would dream up and teach for me, it was like I would take that class. Like that's that that's like really interesting, really fascinating, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about how you might start to you know do that online, or there's other ways to create you know content and classes and masterminds. I mean, I I think there's some real uh, demand for kind of the combination of those subjects that you know you're an expert in and passionate about, and would be fascinating for people to um, you know get a chance to learn from you. First of all, I appreciate that, and I'd love to continue that that conversation. One of the problems with being me, as well as being you, is we're imprisoned by our own reality. So you can be just so self-reflective and. Fortunately, I've done probably more things that are good than, than are bad and successful versus unsuccessful. And let's hope I can continue on that, on that ratio path. Well, I have no doubt that you will. And um, I don't know, do you have any uh, final thoughts you want to share just for the audience? 
just follow your passion. And sometimes it doesn't work out like you think it should. But if you look back retrospectively, you've done something that you, you know, really believe in. And that's all you can do in life when you, when you really think about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We're all visiting. That's all. Yeah. So. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. <laughs>